Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Welcome, podcast listeners. Happy holidays. Today, we have a great different show for you. Our guest is a portfolio manager and is focused on something we haven't discussed that much yet on the show. He leads the alpha brand effort at AccuVest Global Advisors where he also performs investment analysis, portfolio strategy, and implementation. Welcome to the show, Eric Clark. Hey, Meb. How are you? Doing great. You're just down the road in San Diego. We should have we should have dragged you up here in an Uber and made you do it in office. But it feels like summertime in the holidays. I, I haven't quite gotten used to wearing shorts in December. I'm more used to snow, but I can't complain. So for the for the listeners who aren't that familiar, who we always start with a little background for our guests. So why don't you give us a couple minutes on your background uh, and what you've been up to and how you got to where you are today? Sure. I uh, you know I've been in the business for about 25 years. Done a variety of things through that time. You know, started at Merrill Lynch as a as a rookie with a, a big team. And soon realized I wasn't probably the kind of guy that, that would be an advisor, but I love the, the capital markets and the asset management part of the business. So my next step was to go work for an institutional money manager out in the Bay Area called Jerique and Voiles. They were part of Natixis, which is a big holding company. And I knew that I should be on that side of the business. Spent a little time on the portfolio side with primarily, I was kind of focused on doing that for, for the rest of my career. And for a, a lot of reasons, I ended up getting pushed out into the, the sales and the marketing side to cover some meetings when we had a few people leave. And I ended up liking it and staying and spending a lot of time working for different money managers throughout the years, representing strategies and working with institutions and advisors, et cetera. And then uh, after about 2004, I took a step back and decided I want to do something completely different. And I, I've always been even as a sales guy, I've always been a, a capital markets focused person. So I wasn't really a, a traditional sales guy, meaning I'm just going to go out and pitch you an idea, whether it makes sense or not. I was much more fact-based and data-based. I was kind of known as the uh, the chart guy when I was out in, in, in territories. And I, I think most people respected that because I wasn't just trying to sell them something versus show them why something might make sense. So I started a small RIA. I called it Breakaway Partners. Uh, I'm a cyclist, so there was that little cycling metaphor, and it was kind of distancing yourself from the from the pack. And I, you know, I created some kind of trading portfolios using ETFs and single stocks, and that's really where I spent a lot of time getting to know the brand theme. And you know, most of the best investments I've ever had have been investing either as a trade or a long-term theme in a lot of these great brands and focused on the consumption theme, et cetera, et cetera. So then we had 08. That was a good time, as everybody knows. And I ended up deciding to go back to the safe, comfortable world of working for asset managers. And I guess two years ago, I finally just said, you know, I'm really tired of 
talking about things that sound really good and somehow seem to fall short a lot. And I, I, you know, I think everybody in their career has a, that comes to a crossroads where you think, you know, I could either stay doing what I'm doing. I make great money. I have a great life or I can do something radically different that I believe in and, and have it be passion based. And so I, I spent some time thinking about, you know, if I were going to create the perfect strategy, and I know there's not, you know, the word perfect is obviously just sets you up for frustration, but if I was going to set up something that was a, a timeless equity strategy, you know, what would its characteristics be and what would it, what would it look like and how would it be run? And so I spent a lot of time thinking about that. And when I felt like I had the answer, I decided to quit my job. And, uh, you know, my wife was, my, I have, a, I have an amazing family. They were willing to support me along this crazy ride. And, and so uh, here I am two years later, I work uh, with AccuVest and we created this suite of consumption-based brand strategies and and now we're having a lot of fun doing it. Perfect. Well, we've long been good friends with the AccuVest crew. I've enjoyed having tacos with your co-compadre, Mr. Garf, down in Mexico. But before we get into the brands, quick question. This is an office debate. Do you ever do... So I assume this is all road cycling? You know, I started mountain biking when I lived in the Bay Area. I also then did road cycling. And I just decided it's much more fun to be on the dirt and jumping rocks and acting like an eight-year-old than to be flying down the road when I'm worried about cars and people mm-hmm. texting. And so, yeah, I haven't, I haven't road biked for many years. Probably when I lived in L.A. in uh, like 2007, I probably stopped road biking. So it's all mountain now. I love, I love mountain biking. I'm terrible at it. I crash a lot, but it's one of my <laughs> favorite things. But the, the reason I asked is we're debating getting a Peloton for the office. So that was my singular focus. All right. Sorry, podcast listeners. Totally off topic. Let's get into brands. Meanwhile, Peloton, great yeah. brand. I think anytime you can sell a bike <laughs> for like two or $3,000 exercise bike that people won't use. I think the strategy has got to be to buy it. You buy that in like February. When everyone's done their New Year's resolutions. Okay, my lord. Okay, so let's take it from the top. Talk to me about brands. Talk to me about alpha brands. What does that mean? And how does that play a role in portfolio construction? Yeah, well, you know, going back to the my little whiteboard experience a couple of years ago, I, I, I sat down and I just, I think I tasked myself with trying to figure out what are some really stable, predictable, consistent themes that I might want to anchor to because looking at trailing returns for different styles, that never helps. There's not a lot of consistency there, but so I, I, I chose to try to figure out, well, are, are there things that tend to be pretty persistent that I can anchor to and then build a portfolio around? And, you know, the, the reality is it's very common sense. In fact, one of the, I think the first book that I ever read in the industry was Peter Lynch's one up on wall street. And it's essentially know what you own. And his view, and I reread it, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, and I was actually laughing because he pretty much mocked his industry. He basically said, you know, mom and pop on Main Street probably can be better analysts than most Wall Street people because they, they shop. They go around the community and they understand what companies are doing well and what, what isn't doing well. And, and you can usually connect the dots into owning a lot of those companies. And he was, you know, way before his time, Fidelity, when he took over Fidelity, I think it was like a $20 million fund. He rented up to about $9 billion, which was a lot of money back then. It probably, you know, if he did it today, he'd probably be a $60 billion fund. But it had the best track record of its day. And it was a very simple thing and, and, and know what you own. And so 
I realized that really nothing is more persistent than a consumer's propensity to spend. I mean, I challenge anybody to go a day not spending money on something. Certainly, if I can do it, my wife isn't doing it. So that's something that I thought is a, is a pretty predictable thing. And then if you look at, you know, what drives the actual economy, it's not necessarily, you know, I'm less focused on the brands part right now and was more and was more, more focused on the fact that it's just spending the the consumption component of gdp has annualized at about three and a half percent a year for 50 years and so it's been you know there uh, if you look at a lot of the components of gdp they tend to be pretty volatile but there there, there's this smooth line in the middle that's that's consumption and so you know 70 percent of our our gdp is now consumption and not so surprisingly most other countries are the same most of them aren't at 70 percent I mean, China is probably 30% last I checked, but it's a pretty persistent theme across the world. And then, you know, from there, now you can figure out, all right, so if if consumption and and people spending on what they want and what they need is predictable, then how do I build a strategy that kind of taps into that and benefits from that? So so talk to me a little bit about how you do just that. What's what's the framework for going about deciding on What's a good brand? What's a bad brand? Is it purely subjective? Is it quantitative? What's the what's the process? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a little bit of both. I mean, we so the first thing that we did was okay. If we're gonna if we're gonna track a theme, we need to have a index to do that. And so we created what's called the Alpha Brands Consumer Spending Index. It's been uh, on Bloomberg since September of last year. We had it going for longer, but we didn't have it published through INDXX until. I think it was like September 28th of last year. And essentially, we wanted to have a broad universe and we wanted to track a lifetime of spending. So it's a little bit different than consumer discretionary, consumer staples, because, you know, the spending that we do is much more than just staples and, and, and discretionary. I mean, the, in some ways, it's very demographics based. A millennial spends differently than a Gen X, which is, which is where I am. And when I look at my mom at 77, she spends completely differently than I do. Her, you know, 45% of her discretionary income is, is healthcare. So the goal would be with, you know, create the most relevant and most recognizable brands, 200 of them tracking a lifetime of spending. And brands are very interesting because it's not, generally speaking, they're, they're intangible assets. So you can't really, you know, go look on the balance sheet. Occasionally you can see something on the goodwill line for for certain companies, but it's very difficult to track this intangible asset. And so we realized that we have to go find them where they live, meaning we went all the way down to the industry level at the, you know, when creating the index. So we, we looked through the, the indexes and we said, you know, there's about 150 industries to choose from. Let's decide which ones are the most correlated and tied to consumers and consumption. And then also we wanted to have B2C brands as well as B2B brands, business to business. And so we we also included what we call brands that were vital parts of the consumption supply chain, meaning if travel is a big theme and for the consumer, Boeing obviously is the largest airplane manufacturer. They don't directly sell to consumers, but they do build planes that sell to airlines that and that's the way we get our lead into travel. So essentially, identify 200 companies, 10 sectors, 70 sub-industries, and that's where the, a lot of the quant work begins. So we'll, we created a ranking system that just was designed to kind of drive us into the leaders in those industries. 
It, it includes market cap and, and three-year sales and three-year sales growth. And then we just rank every company that's in those, in those industries from top scoring to, to bottom scoring. And then we did a bit of an asset allocation plan where we just said, you know, we don't need every company in each one of these industries. The goal would be to get as much exposure to the total revenues of that industry by taking as few names as possible. So for instance, you know, if there's five home improvement names to choose from, you get 95% of the revenues just by taking Home Depot and Lowe's. So we kind of did that same process, pretty granular across the 70 industries, knowing that we only had 200 slots to fill. So we had to be very specific about, you know, how many we took from apparel retail versus packaged foods versus, you know, tech hardware or something. And, and a lot of that was based on the names that we had to choose from and some of the qualitative work that we did within the, you know, the balance sheet and saying, okay, if your revenues are X, what percentage of the revenues are really tied to the consumer or part of that theme? And we just chose to include the ones, that, the, the number of, uh, of brands that made the most sense. So like for just for, for instance, food packaging, there's a lot of brand recognition in there. You know, General Mills, Smucker, Campbell Soup, et cetera. So there's, I think last year's 200, the, the largest number came from the food package. I think there was 11 or 12. And then some industries, we only needed one. All we wanted was, you know, uh, an anchor tenant, if you will, in that particular industry, if we deemed it important to track. And then 20% of the 200 will always be international. And we did that because there are a lot of companies that are not U.S.-based that are very prevalent, very recognizable in the U.S. And so we, we thought, you know, if we create 200 and we give a a slot to 20 different names for international that are making inroads or have made inroads into American society and American consumerism, that's a, that's a decent exposure to those names. This is interesting because it's a little bit of a, what I would consider to be a, both a, a subjective as well as quantitative process, right? I mean, there's, there's some, is there some, you know, kind of manager input on, is this a brand that's recognizable or alpha brand? Am I speaking to that correctly? Or is it, it's not purely quantitative, correct? It isn't. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, candidly, the back test, because uh, some industries weren't even around 10 years ago. So in some ways you had to find, okay, you know, Sherman Williams was in that category, but it's clearly the largest paint and coating company in the world. We might've had to include it in one industry when it's in another industry currently. So the, the nice thing about, you know, and we all know nobody's ever created a bad back test. So they, you have to take every back test with a grain of salt. For us, this exercise was about just creating an investable universe with a framework that I just described that ultimately we could adapt over time as the changing consumers and their habits changed over time. So as the baby boomers pass away and their ways of spending changes in lieu of the Gen X and the and the millennials and the Gen Z, probably some of the, you know, our exposure to certain industries might be reduced or increased depending on our work on the demographic side. But the back test, if you will, was a static look. And we just said, okay, we've made a choice to say, this industry, we take the top four. This industry, we take the top seven. This industry, we take the top three. But going forward, we have a little bit of latitude to make sure that, that we're capturing the spending that's happening in the way that we want to do that. So, so obviously, you, as an ETF you know, creator and provider, 
that's not the alpha brands index is probably not one we would create a passive ETF on because there is some of that latitude and, and some people have a problem with that. And, and, but there are plenty of examples of ETFs that were created where, where there was, you know, quote unquote, an investment committee that, uh, that made those decisions. I'll take issue with it. You never created a bag back test. We create dozens of those probably every day. <laughs> but so t- talk to me a little bit about how that portfolio works going forward. So what, what is kind of the criteria for kicking one out? So as, as I think I'm sitting here, you know, there, there's a handful of what I would consider to probably be alpha brands that have been around for decades, but more recently may have fallen on hard times. I'm thinking more recently about, say, General Electric cutting its dividend, or is is an IBM, you know, seen as a dinosaur? Or is that still considered an alpha brand? You know, so do, and, and does it make it a buying opportunity, or is this time different? How how do you guys kind of think about kicking names out as well as you know con- continuing to include them in the portfolio? Sure. We're actually going to do our index reconstitution next week. And that's a super fun exercise to go through. And, you know, in in some ways, the ranking system is still what we lean on. So if you, you know, if you use IBM as, as an example, if you look at the industry that IBM is in, the data processing and outsourcing, I think that's going to be a, a number one or a number two. And so we're probably still going to have an IBM. And candidly, it's still a pretty powerful B2B brand that just lost their way for a little while. I think the things that might fall out are, for instance, if we took the food packaging, you know, that industry is really coming under pressure. The old way of buying those brands has changed a little bit with our focus on healthier foods. And certainly millennials are changing the way they, they view buying food. And so some of those brands have just lost their way. Some of them are buying emerging brands. I mean, Kellogg just bought a, you know, a four-year-old company for 600 million bucks, this RX bar, I think, I think it was called. And, you know, they're, they're clearly looking at their, at their product lineup and saying, we are heavy, high fructose corn syrup and, uh, and hydrogenated oils and very low on organics and, and all, and all those, uh, those buzzwords. So, in some ways, a company that is that is losing their appeal by some of the work that we do qualitatively and quantitatively, they will be pushed out, understanding that if you know if we need to to make room for more companies in another industry, we have some choices to make. So it'll be interesting to see that process happen. Last year, we added PayPal because mobile payments are obviously a very important driver of growth. And that was a spin out from eBay. So we had a chance to add that one. Ferrari went public. So we added Ferrari and then we added Square and Zillow. You know, so a lot of this is looking at trends and deciding what are less important and what are more important and, and do, what names do we have to choose from to be able to pick and choose. And, you know, I, certainly from a, from a retail perspective, we may choose to lighten up on the number of department stores. We have three now. We might even go down to one. Maybe you just need Nordstrom, Macy's. I don't know that you need Macy's. It's just a real estate play at this point. So, you know, like I said, we're, it's a fun time to go through that process, but part of it is very quantitative in the ranking system and what, what choices we have. And then some of it at, at the end is, you know, let's, let's talk about that brand and see, you know, maybe, maybe it comes in as number seven and we've only chosen to have five. But is Live Nation, actually Live Nation was another one that we added last year, clearly a very important company in the, in the experience category and concerts. And it's been a great stock year to date. 
Um, it, it wouldn't have made the top five from a, from a ranking system, but we chose to include it because it's a clear winner in an area that's, that's becoming much more popular. Talk to me. I, I don't know the answer to this. Is, is valuation something you consider as a part of your inputs? I mean, as I think about some brands, you have like on one hand, what would consider to be a pretty, by most valuation metrics, a pretty expensive but dominant brand like Amazon. And maybe on the flip side, same general industry, you know, Apple, which may be a cheaper company, but also dominant brand. Is Do you guys take into account valuation at all? Or is it something that you see is, is secondary or not, not relevant to the core methodology? You know, we don't really take the valuation into consideration because the, the exercise of creating the index is more based on capturing the most important brands. And then, you know, some of the other products that we run that are, that are powered by that index, obviously valuations are a part of those decisions, but from, a, from an index creation, it's just more about let's capture the right 200 companies. And, and the index, it, it literally is a horse race. We don't rebalance it during the year. It's just, we pick the 200 companies, they're equal weighted. It's a horse race the entire year. And then we reconstitute at the end of the year, simply because we just want to track that theme. And then over time, you know, it'll be really fun to look back at this, you know, 20 years from now to see how we've changed, you know, 20 years, for, uh, 20 years ago, you would have had Sears and, you know, plenty of other JC Penney would have been in there, I'm sure. But clearly those brands have peaked and are going away. It's interesting as you talk about brands, because, you know, you think about not only brands over time, as you were saying, Peter Lynch, the, I think the example, if God, if I remember this from reading it 20 years ago was what's the name of the pantyhose? Was it Legos? Not Legos. Legs. I think I feel like he might have used that in his the, book. The egg. Yeah, the egg. The egg. Um, and so I was <laughs> laughing when you were talking about department stores because I was going to interrupt you and say, listen, millennial listeners, a department store is actually this building you go to and you can actually <laughs> buy things uh, you know, in, in the store and take them home as opposed to them getting delivered by Amazon. So it's interesting to think about deterioration of brands and new brands taking over and the process of replacing and introducing new ones. And also, but intergenerational where millennials have such a totally different brand loyalty than parents and grandparents might. Interesting. So where does this fit in as far as a portfolio? Is this just a, a pure equity substitute? Is this something you see as a satellite? Like what's the what's the general kind of thought there? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's two things. One, I mean, certainly if you are inclined to invest in the consumer and, you, and you've been using, you know, the XLY or the XLP, that's the consumer discretionary consumer staples ETFs, you know, to me, this just gives you a much more broad and comprehensive allocation to that same theme. We're just do, approaching it from a lifetime of spending perspective. And then the bigger picture, I, I think it's just a better core. I mean, I, I really, part of the, you know, all of us that somehow arbitrarily have to be benchmarked against the S&P 500, you know, it, it bothers us all at certain times. But from, from our perspective, you know, if you, if you look even at the, if you look at the S&P 500 index methodology language, it says the S&P U.S. indices are designed to reflect the U.S. equity markets and through those markets, the U.S. economy by investing in leading companies. But here's my problem with that. If they are supposed to be a proxy for the, for the economy and the, and the economy is 70% driven by consumption, why does the S&P only have 12% consumer discretionary and 8% staples. That's, a, that's 20%, yet GDP is 70%. Now, I know a lot of the other companies 
are in there in other sectors. So it's probably a little bit higher. But our, we just think a better core, if your goal is to track the real economy, the real U.S. economy, is to just in some way tilt your portfolio, your core portfolio to the consumer, because it, just doing that, just being lazy and doing that part of it is going to get you to beat the market a lot more than you might imagine. What does the brand sort of index sector composition look like? So it's almost literally, if you look back the entire backtest period, Roughly 40%, somewhere between 38 and 40% is always consumer discretionary, and then another 15 to 20% is in staples. And so you're clearly, I mean, you know, if you're going to make an active bet, you're you're on this strategy and in any of the stuff that we run, you're you're making a bet that you want to be tilted towards the consumer for a variety of reasons. Does this have any sort of risk factor to? consumer spending in general, say recessions or other times is strategy, do you think it would be particularly challenging in, in certain parts of the business cycle? Yeah. I mean, you know, I, when we first did this, I think one of the first videos I did with, with Dave in the AccuBest office was I took a look at every recession and every bigger, you know, kind of correction, 15% or more. And obviously <laughs> there hasn't been that many of them. But what I found interesting is you would think that if consumption drives the economy and maybe the economy is slowing, that consumer discretionary would be an absolutely dreadful place to be. And the reality is all of the data says that consumer discretionary as a sector looks pretty much exactly like the market, the S&P, in those difficult periods. But the staples component actually acts as a, a life raft, if you will, because of their defensive and predictable characteristics. So kind of you're, you're essentially creating a barbell, a risk barbell where consumer discretionary, that cyclicality helps you when the market's doing well and maybe gets market-like when things are difficult. But the staples component really has acted as a stabilizer. Now, who knows? We all know that staples are very sensitive. They're kind of bond proxies, if you will. So who knows if interest rates go if the 35-year bond bull market is finally over and interest rates start to trend higher, then I would suspect that there will be a haves and have-nots within the staples and other other defensive industries. But you know, strictly from a look-back perspective, it's been a pretty good barbell to have. Let's talk about that as we approach kind of 2018. You know, it's a good time to reflect, but but look ahead. So, how do you see the coming year? You know, as you mentioned, recession is almost like an outdated concept. I don't think we've had one this decade, which uh, there hasn't been a decade ever where there hasn't been a recession. Usually you get, you're in for a good one to three. So how do you see 2018 shaping up? We can talk about consumption, volatility, broad market, winners, losers, anything you want to talk about. What's what's kind of your, your outlook? Yeah, I mean, well, you know, since we know the Fed now has smoothed out the business cycle to ward off any recessions possible, Ha ha, wink, wink. The business cycle still matters. And, you know, I, I think the biggest thing I, I personally, when I'm out, you know, I spend obviously a lot of time talking to advisors, whether they be independents or RIAs or, or wirehouse folks, there is a bit of complacency out there. I, I think people are as checked out from the capital markets portfolio management process as I certainly have ever seen for 25 years. And, you know, we've all in some ways, we have opted for cheap beta. And, and I, I think that's a good thing in part. I, I don't know that I'm a believer personally in, in a 100% cheap beta broad market allocation strategy without having some tactical or thematics around there. 
But my, my biggest concern about 2018 is that stocks are expensive. Volatility, we're, we're coming off of a year in 2017 where volatility was as low as it's been since I think uh, there was a bespoke chart uh, not too long ago. Vol's been as quiet as it's been since 1964. So the natural question is what happened in 1965? And you had some bouts of and spasmic volatility. You had a 10% correction, but the year ended up okay. And, and I suspect that's, that's what we might see with some complacency, with earnings expectations that are getting much more difficult to beat next year. So, I mean, I'm even worried about tech. There's obviously within every industry, there's slivers of winners and losers. But, you know, tech is the one sector that most people have an overweight to, ourselves included in the index and in a lot of the portfolios that we run. But one, tech is, tech is extended from its kind of long-term channel. That the, the more it gets extended, the more difficult the, the forward returns tend to be. And uh, comps get pretty hard for a lot of these companies next year. So one of the things that we're doing right now is I want to know where I can tiptoe over expectations. So I, so I know within the brands index what, what sectors, what subsectors, what, what companies might have an easy time with expectations because I don't want to be too over my skis with companies that have high valuations and have just, you know, they're still doing well in general, but on a rate, rate of change basis, they're, having, they're going to have a harder time meeting expectations. High valuations, not meeting expectations, I tend not to be rewarded that well in, uh, in markets. So, you know, if I, were, if I had to close my eyes and, and say what happens in 2018, I'd say volatility wakes up. People aren't really, uh, I think it will be a bit of an eye-opener for people that, that their portfolio didn't perform like they thought it was going to perform in that kind of environment. They're probably a little too exposed to credit in general, and they're probably exposed to things that have a harder time beating expectations, and they probably don't have enough exposure to things that look more interesting at, you know, emerging markets. From our perspective, the brands, obviously, 80% of them are U.S. companies, 20% of them are international. But in some of the strategies that we run, one of the factors that we have been heavily involved in this year is making sure we have enough international sales exposure as a, as a proxy to get access to that kind of emerging market theme. How did you guys kind of arrive at that number, the 20%? Is that just kind of a ballpark? Because, you know, one of the pushbacks, I think, to, to something that you had talked about would be that, you know, a lot of the global markets on a number of valuation indicators may look cheaper. So there may be more opportunity in global brands. How, you know, is there, a, is there a reason that kind of 20% was, was chosen or was it just kind of, you know, ballpark estimate, estimates or what was the thinking there? Which 20%? I thought you said the 20% of the kind of the global brands concept was in foreign stocks. Was Did I mishear that? Sorry, 20 companies of the 200 or ah. 10%. I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah, and that, that was decided two years ago. So we, we this was obviously a primarily U.S. domiciled index, understanding that many of these brands have a global footprint. But 10% of, those, of that 200 or 20 names will always be international brands. And so, you know, between buying a U.S. company that has high international sales or, or owning one of the 20 or, or multiples of the 20 companies that are international brands, we get access to that, you know, kind of that emerging market and ex-U.S. 
thematic revenue base. Interesting. And so, you know, you mentioned you've been an advisor in this industry for a while, and we've kind of seen this compression on beta assets. You can basically buy and hold portfolio for all intents and purposes, almost free. Kind of what do you, when you look through your lens of your experience, but also looking forward, kind of what's what's the future from an advisory standpoint of the industry, given the robos, fee compression, What's, and you have any thoughts on the kind of asset management industry in general? <laughs> so I just spent two weeks on the road and met some huge teams, some wirehouse teams, some RA teams. And there was this persistent statement that is like nails on a chalkboard for me. And it's this notion that the, the investment portfolio, part of the relationship that, that an advisor has has become a commodity and they don't really care about trying to, to add that alpha and create that, that excess return and, and have this timeless portfolio. They're more interested in just owning everything at all times and just doing it as cheaply as possible. And I, and I, I, I mean, maybe it's just that I'm a dinosaur and I, I'm, I still believe that alpha is, is available and alpha is possible and, and beating a benchmark is possible if you understand a bunch of things and, and, and I, and I understand, you know, advisors are very busy. They have a lot of clients to service. They're out looking for new business and, and they, they generally don't have a lot of the resources or data that's available to them to make, you know, big, important portfolio decisions at very vital times. I am an absolute believer in owning cheap beta as part of your portfolio. In fact, you know, coming out of a recession, just own everything and do it as cheaply as possible. I, I think that makes a lot of sense. But fast forward eight or nine years, we're kind of late cycle. Maybe we go on for another couple of years. I, I would bet, and I've seen some stats, that active tends to outperform at different parts of the cycle. And certainly, if you have an interest in really creating a, a more unique and timely portfolio for the kind of market that we're in. I, I just don't see that. I, I, I see most people just kind of throwing their hands up in the air and saying, you know what, it's not my core strength. I don't have the data. I don't have the time. I get constantly hit up from, you know, wholesalers from mutual fund companies and ETF companies. And, you know, everybody's got a great idea. And my rule has always been like, how can there, if there are 70 people trying to get a hold of an advisor and they all have a good idea, how can there possibly be 70 good ideas? It just it's just not possible. So uh, you have to you have to be able to understand good information from just a, a, a thinly disguised sales pitch. But my view is that you absolutely can do some really interesting things to a portfolio, and you shouldn't. My again, my own personal opinion, you should not be fully exposed to risk all the time. A, a couple of the strategies that we run are they're run as if that was your only asset pool. And so that's going to, sometimes it's going to look like a fully invested equity strategy. And sometimes it's going to look like a balanced fund. And I'm, and I'm totally fine with that. So tell me about a couple of those strategies. What are, what are some things that people can add, you know, that might be additive to a traditional portfolio? Sure. We started as most do with uh, separate accounts. So we run a core strategy that's called core brands. That is, it's not fully quant, but I, I kind of, we, we call it internally kind of quant informed. We, we run off of three different, uh, multi-factors. One is what we call operating kings. That's more growthy in nature. One is sustainable yield. That's more value and dividend in nature. And then one's price momentum. 
And that strategy has done super well this year, but it's, it's equal weighted among the three factors. And uh, it's about a 35 stock portfolio and it's very diverse, all being powered by the 200 index. And then we, we also run a strategy called dynamic brands. And I, and the view, you know, my personal view was there's a lot of different ways to categorize an advisor, but very simply, some advisors want to control the asset allocation. They want to make those decisions. They want to know exactly what they own. So that, and, and then when they need to tweak it, they can just do that. They can move the kind of the chess pieces around the board. That's the, you know, if, if you're that kind of advisor, the core strategy is great for you uh, because you know it's going to be fully invested. It's going to be equities. And then on the other side of the ledger, some advisors say, you know, it's not my core strength. I would rather the money manager make the decisions, tell, you know, to how much risk to take, when to dial it up, when to dial it down. Uh, if you believe it's smart to be, to be holding some cash or even to have a little bit of short exposure, that's up to you. I'll judge you based on your, your, your benchmark and, and whether you were right or wrong at that. But, uh, but I want to turn that onus over to you. And that's the dynamic strategy. So I, I, to me, I wanted to have both when we sat down and talked about the kind of the landscape. We just wanted to have something for both kinds of, of advisors or investors. I mean, we have some direct clients as well. So those separate accounts are available to advisors through most intermediaries and, and a few wirehouses. Obviously, it's in a dual contract perspective. But as you know, from separate accounts, it's a slow moving train to get big distribution. So that'll be a we're just letting those cook. And, you know, three years from now, we'll, we'll look at the performance and we'll have some assets in there. And then we'll be able, if we decide to do that, we'll be able to get some, some bigger distribution. And then we sub-advise a mutual fund using the dynamic model, as well as creating an ETF. And, and so we at least wanted to have some mass market products available with, for the consumption theme, whether they be core or dynamic. Very cool. You know, I, I, the brand stuff, I mean, I think a lot as just this conversation, so many questions pop up in my head. I mean, it would be interesting to, you know, so much of this could be survey based on the brands, but to kind of tracking declining brands. And then you got to wonder, I mean, obviously it's privately traded, but stuff like Uber, where it's this just monumental brand, but it, it's had so much bad publicity and so many misfires. It's, I imagine there's a dozen Harvard case studies talking about how brands and, and, you know, a close cousin to this would probably be some of the moat indices. And because I'm sure they go hand in hand where a business has a big fat moat. One of the reasons being brand loyalty like Coca-Cola. But thinking about how brands deteriorate, is it simply business model? Is it a uh, change of times and perceptions? It's an area that's probably a, a ton of not just quantitative and, and f financial research, but psychological as well, where, where you could probably apply some, some really interesting studies overlays. Anyway, that was, <laughs> that's just me just thinking out loud. Well, look, look, at, look at Chipotle. I mean, Chipotle is a perfect example. That was the, fa you know, kind of the fast, casual food with integrity brand. And they had a couple of food scares. And I mean, the stock has gotten absolutely annihilated. And now they have a new CEO coming in and they're, you know, they're trying to get the brand back together no pun intended, but I think consumers are very sticky and they're very loyal. Once you can prove to them that you care and that you're creating products and services that are important to them, and hopefully you have maybe some good corporate branding, people will stay loyal to you. And, and I suspect people will be back to, you know, people haven't fully left Chipotle, but 
that's certainly a good example of a recent company that had a really strong brand image that that lost its way a little bit for for a variety of reasons and is now trying to get back on track and i and i'm sure that they'll probably do that that's what happens to your brand when you give everyone diarrhea that should be a lesson learned Uh, (laughs) that's not a memory we all want to (laughs) have yeah well look eric it's been a lot of fun we love asking uh investors at the end of a podcast what their own personal most memorable trade has ever been so is there anything that comes to mind for you that's either positive or negative for the first thing that pops into your head when when you say what's the what's the most memorable investment you've ever made oh man that's easy i put all of my money in bitcoin three years ago no i could i wish i wish i did that (laughs) you know I, i hate to say it but uh I think part of who we become is based on who we were and what we did. My worst trade is so silly and so stubborn that it it changed me as an investor. And the the focusing on what should happen versus what is happening is a is a driver of how I personally manage money today. And that was tr- as a trader trying to get just trying to do a, a cute little counter trend trade short banks in July of 09 and get at getting absolutely run over and then backed over as banks were just beginning their massive comeback from, you know, the, the depths of despair. So, so sometimes, you know, you read zero hedge and you get all these people on the media, they get into your head and they, and you, you try to invest that way. But the reality is, the bull market or the bear market ended in on March of 09 and trying cute counter trend trades just is silly. Just wait, be patient and buy dips instead of trying to go the other direction on a one way street. And that thing that was, it was silly. It was stubborn and it certainly lost me a bunch of money. So, you know, you, we, we learn and we move on. Yeah, you, you often, hopefully, only have to learn those lessons once, uh, a, lot of the, <laughs> a lot of the painful ones, for sure. Um, you got any final words for our listeners, um, particularly on the retail side, that are interested individuals in kind of some of these concepts? Is there any particular resources or books or ideas or papers or things that you think is particularly interesting as, as kind of the year winds down? Yeah, I think a couple of things. Number one, whether you're an advisor or you're an investor, you are not without help from a resources perspective. You know, my, my line going back the last couple of years has always been use me as a resource as kind of an outsourced research analyst. And, you know, we run a lot of factor data in-house at AccuVest. And so we, we have what's called a horse race and it's it's multiple factors. So we literally every day I can see within the 200 index, different factors and how they're performing. And so it's a wonderful real-time view of, you know, watching it this year and seeing international sales, high growth companies and price momentum. Those three factors were what was clearly what was driving returns. And so if you see that data and you don't have enough exposure to those things, um, then, then you have, you know, there's an ETF for everything out there. So you have the ability to do that. So Certainly use, use AccuVest and myself as a resource because we, we create a lot of data. We have two blog sites, the AccuVest on the AccuVest.com site, we have a blog. And then we, we also run an index for the ETF through GlobalX. It's IconicBrandsIndex.com. 
and we'll blog on that one too and put some great information. And then lastly, I just, in some ways, brands are investing in brands that we like and that we trust. It's a, it's a wonderful hedge against the spending that we have on all those companies. And so I, did, I just did some work for fun. And I said, okay, if you spend on Amazon regularly, Amazon Prime's 99 bucks a year. Uh, maybe you spend a thousand bucks a year on Amazon. Maybe now, you know, now that they own Whole Foods, maybe you spend 6,000 bucks a year on Whole Foods. That's, that's a total of $70,990 over a 10 year period. If you had put 25,000 bucks in Amazon stock 10 years ago, your gain would have been 289,000 bucks. So it more than paid for all the spending that you did across the Amazon platform. And the same could be true with, I did the same thing on Starbucks. I mean, your gain in Starbucks far outweighed the money that you spent. If the average consumer spends 1100 bucks a year on coffee and Starbucks is their brand of choice, your gain in owning that stock far paid for your enjoyment uh, by, you know, taking those products and services. And so, you know, building a portfolio of those brands and all those industries that we spend money on is a pretty compelling, number one, it's a compelling portfolio. You know, I, I did a fun illustration on Riskalyze, a really unique analytics site. And I, I took each one of those industries that we tend to spend on, and it was 20 companies, and they were just a lot of the bigger companies, absolute hindsight bias, FYI, that's fine. But, you know, names like, you know, I spend at Costco and I go to Home Depot for home improvements and I spend at Comcast for my cable and I, I buy Nike and Lululemon on the athleisure side and United Healthcare for my, for my healthcare spending. That 20 stock portfolio far out, out uh, literally equal weighted, it crushed the S&P. And it's a, literally a portfolio that you, ex you know exactly what you own and why you own it. And that's the whole point of this exercise, not really for the good times, but for when, when times get tough, we all want to know, okay, what do I own? Why do I own it? And should I still own it? And then once you look at the brands and the consumption theme, you probably say, well, gosh, I love these companies. I know they're not going out of business. Maybe I want to add to that in, in difficult times. And over time, that probably helps you more often than it hurts. So I would say we're here at AccuVest.com. And um, I'm always available to talk. And it's just a, it's a pleasure to have a conversation and just talk about the consumption and the brands theme. I was, I just, as you were describing that in my head, I'm like, all right, how long till we see a robo advisor that aggregates all of your spending data and then helps you hedge <laughs> with your investment portfolio across your biggest expenses. So for Jeff, that's Campbell's soup. I was trying to think what it might be for me, maybe, <laughs> maybe a uh, new Belgium brewing company or something. I don't know. Um, but that's an interesting idea. We talk about hedging, a lot here and that that's one of the more unique hedging ideas i've ever heard we talk about hedging the asset management business with puts but actually hedging your spending right. by owning the companies you spend on um that might be a new one off the marinade on that eric it's been a blast it's been a lot of fun uh thanks for joining us today awesome thanks you thank you guys and have a happy uh, holiday you as well. Listeners will post a bunch of show notes, links to AccuVest and everything else on mebfavor.com forward slash podcast. You can always find almost 100 podcast episodes now in the archives and subscribe to the show on iTunes. Leave us a review. We love to read them. That'll be our holiday present to us. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. Good investing.